the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. Welcome to episode 98 of Magic Markets, and it's great to have you here with us. It's just Mo and I again this week, and it's going to be a really interesting show because we asked on Twitter for people to submit some questions that they would like us to answer, and a little shout out to our friend Pietri, who you know from Herenios with us once a week. His question was, Bitcoin, when moon? Which we're not going to be answering because my view is that Bitcoin will never make it to the moon, Pietri, and I know you were just joking. Uh, Mo, Bitcoin, when moon? So we'll start there then. Yeah, I was I was just con- I was confused with Pietri's choice of words like when moon not for not formally creating entire sentences yeah let's skip that <laughs> let's skip that one um, I think I think we got such an interesting and eclectic mix of questions though ghost I mean some of them slightly more personal some of them markets orientated so I think let's jump straight in right I mean we we might be able to answer some of them uh, but it's a nice way to just shine a light into stuff that might be market-related or personal-related. And the one I think we're going to skip, Ghost, is, you know, what's your real name? We're going to skip that one uh, for now. Yeah, but let's, let's, let's get into the other questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So meme culture aside and when moon and when Lambo and all those good things. Mo, first question. What have you done overall with your individual portfolio this year? Dun, dun, dun. I'm excited to hear the answer to this because I actually don't know what it is. Yeah, Ghost, I mean, it's been a tough year, right? First and foremost, I've been a lot less active in my trading portfolio, simply because despite the fact that there's a lot of volatility, and we always say volatility brings opportunity, I just think that the type of volatility we've had have been orientated around risks that are very difficult to quantify. They are geopolitical risks. They are macroeconomic and policy risks. They're the kind of risks that are hard to formulate when you don't actually know what action some of the the actors in that space are going to come through with. Uh, So in that context, actual activities in the portfolio, I've held back a lot. I've been sitting on a lot more cash than I would like to admit. And the irony is this, Ghost, is that markets have come off quite a bit. So whilst cash does tend to burn a hole in your pocket, whilst you tend to go backward in real terms with inflation running as hot as it is, you know, it actually has outperformed on a relative basis versus the likes of equity. If I had had equity exposure for that, bearing in mind, when I say I've had a lot more cash, this is within my more actively managed asset allocation part of my portfolio. What have I actually done though, in terms of things I've added into the portfolio? I haven't sat on my hands entirely. So I've added in selective real estate stocks. Uh, I think a lot of them have come off. They give me a nice, decent real asset underpin. They give me a nice, decent yield underpin. So that's really been the flavor of some of the activities of the stuff that I've put into my portfolio is more defensive, slightly more value in flavor, and definitely stuff with a decent cash flow underpin that's actually mitigated some of the inflation risk that we're seeing on a macro level. What about you, Ghost? 
So I'm irritated with myself because I specifically didn't sell big chunks of my portfolio at the end of last year when clearly I should have because I was worried about paying the tax and I thought, geez, this is irritating. I really don't feel like paying maximum income tax rate. I'm sure it's going to drop, but it's not going to be like severe, severe. So I've been caught by how bad it's been this year. I did think it was going to be a horrible year for equities, but it's been particularly poor. So what I should have done was sold and just paid the tax, right, and bought back later, whereas now... I mean, yeah, let's not even go there. So it is what it is. There's a lesson there. Um, this is one of the advantages that active fund managers in a sort of tax-efficient structure have is they can rebalance their portfolios without worrying about the tax. As a retail investor, unfortunately, it is always top of mind. And I think the lesson I've learned this year is don't get too hung up on paying income tax versus CGT. If something is expensive, it's expensive. And if you need to get out of it, get out of it. So that's a lesson that I'll carry with me for the rest of time. Uh, in general, I have also been cautious this year. I mean, stuff was dropping and it became clear after a while that it was not going to stop. So there's no point in throwing good money after bad in those scenarios. It's nice to be able to go short. It's been a lovely year if you are a hedge fund. It's been less so if you are a sort of long-term investor. I think traders could have made money this year if they were net short, obviously. But then you need to be watching the markets unbelievably closely. And, you know, the irony is even though we watch it so closely, I also spend so much time running the business <laughs> that you, you're not watching it in such a way that you can trade it during the day that easily. You know, there's meetings, there's pitches to advertisers across the various things I'm involved with, et cetera, et cetera. So it actually makes it kind of tricky, which is interesting. Uh, what I haven't really done is sold anything. I mean, you know, you don't sell at the bottom. Like That's just silly. So... Every now and again, I have a look and I think, okay, am I still happy to own this long term? And the answer, generally speaking, is yes, I am. Um, I haven't moved any rands into dollars recently with obviously, you know, what's happened with the currency. It's all good and well to go and buy cheap US stocks, but it really doesn't help if you took your rand dealers out at 18 bucks 20. So, Mo, that's not a problem you have anymore, um, or at least not as much as you used to, I'm sure. Uh, you kind of have, a, you know, for me, I kind of have a pool of dollars that I can play with, but I haven't added to the pool of dollars, if that makes sense. I've uh, held on to my classic call, though that's going to probably change in the near future. But that's an alternative asset, ultimately, in my portfolio. It is an inflation hedge. It is also a RAND hedge. So, you know, people laugh and they think it's stupid. But that's been one of my best investments I've ever made, quite honestly, is the classic car. So, yeah, it's been a, a year of caution, to be honest. And uh, I think it's going to start to become a bit more active fairly soon, although I'm still not sure that we've seen the worst of it. But, yeah, that's me. I just want to add one thing there because I may have skipped over it. So when you're looking at the FX thing, it's something we've discussed so many times on the show that that's the reason I want to circle back to that because I, I maybe omitted what happened in my world in that space is, yes, of course, you know, I'm a lot more dollarized now than I was back in the past. I don't live in South Africa any longer. But with regards to investors looking to diversify their exposure away from RANDs for their offshore portfolios, what I've generally found is a disciplined approach. So actually try and contextualize how much of your portfolio is ideal for you to have offshore based on what your risk profile is. I'm not going to tell you, hey, have all your money offshore. That doesn't make sense. I'm also not going to tell you, hey, it's 10 or 20%. Everyone's going to have a different number. So have the number in your head in terms of what you'd like to get to and then apply a discipline in terms of your cash flow and getting that out. I'm certainly not saying, hey, you know, pick a level where the rand's at 18 plus to the US dollar and just do it. But what I am saying is that no one at the end of the day can really pin where FX markets are going to go in the shorter term. Over the longer term, yes, there are certain constructs that tend to hold. But just apply a disciplined approach to when you externalize that money so that you can actually get to your targeted number and that it doesn't get away from you. If you apply that discipline, execute, get it off, 
park it in offshore cash if you need to, and then forget about it. There's no point, you know, kind of commiserating on the fact that, hey, I took my rands out at 18 and now it's at 17. At the end of the day, you're trying to achieve something bigger than just a level of currency that you've taken your rands out in. You're trying to achieve an asset allocation. That's how I contextualize those discussions in my head, in my world. Yep, very interesting, Mo. I like it. So I'm going to move on to the next question, which is, how do you think about the sizing of individual positions within your portfolio? The original question actually mentioned equities, but obviously there's more to life than equities. So you actually have to think about any individual position. And then what are the main factors that would influence you to give a particular asset a large weighting? And maybe that's more relevant in an equities context, but perhaps not. So you go first, Mo, and then I'll give it a bash. I was going to tell you to go first. <laughs> uh, because I'll take it. I'll let you off if you want. No, no, no. I mean, let's, let's jump in. I mean, I, I think we've, we always discuss equity allocations, right? And, you know, there's this rule of thumb, you know, 1% is kind of a, a fair exposure to a specific individual equity. If you really like it, you can let that go up to, to 2%, maybe even 3 um, It all depends on how you manage your risk. You know, so I'm talking now at an individual security level. Let's, let's first start there. I like to look at it also on an asset allocation level. I'll get to that shortly. But on an individual security level, I would always initiate a position. Uh, if I'm not that confident about it, or if I'm legging into a trade, for example, so I'm not confident about the level right now, I think it could get cheaper, but I want the exposure, I'll start off at around 1%. And then as the price moves in the direction I expect it to move, as I get a lot more confident with regards to my investment or trading thesis, I will actually scale into that position. And generally on acquiring a position, I don't like to take more than 3% at an initial, uh, at an initial position level. Then as the position rides and rallies up, this is also a point of contention because how big do you let a position get in your portfolio? And I've had times where individual positions have risen to as much as 15, almost 20% of the portfolio. And at that level, I start to get quite uncomfortable because there is a school of thought of letting your winners run. And yes, you absolutely have to do that. But you know, once I start getting at around 10 to 15, I start saying, this is something I've got to look at maybe, you know, just trimming back a little bit. And if we actually get beyond that, I'll then actively go and, and trim that position just from a risk management perspective, even if the investment thesis is correct. And, and sometimes I actually say, take the money I put in off the table and let the rest of it ride as a position because then that's just your profit. That's effectively your net riding position if you want to call it that. So that's insofar as individual positions go. Insofar as asset allocation goes, this ties into a lot more of my, my macro view of the world. And there I look at things like, you know, what kind of exposure do I want to regions or countries or asset classes? I mean, we've laughed about my very large, sizable, maybe slightly smaller gold position. Uh, and that's something that, you know, I've held for some time, maybe because I'm, I'm, I'm some cuckoo who wears a tinfoil hat at the end of the day. But I just, in the asset allocation space, I would like my position sizing to reflect my ability to sleep easy at night without worrying and stressing around individual downside risks to my portfolio. I'm very risk averse, and that's where I come from on that on that front. What about you, Ghost? Yeah, so I like to use ETFs as my biggish positions just to bring beta into the portfolio. It's a really nice way to do it. Like They're going to rise and fall with the broader market, but at the end of the day, that's life. All your stocks are going to do that. And at least over time, you know, if one company within an ETF falls over, you know, you're not going to be poor. Then obviously there's a, there's a strong element of having single stock positions around that. And I am typically in that sort of one to one and a half percent camp. Um, at one point I was overweight Alibaba, but the nice thing about Alibaba is it actually right sizes itself over time by losing half its value. It's very nice like that. 
So it sorts it out for you. Um, with no tax exposure, might I add, I have 99 problems on Alibaba, but tax exposure is certainly not one of them. So moving on from that very sore point, then there's obviously some core lons, which I'll just hold forever, you know, Microsoft, transaction capital in South Africa, Visa, Disney, just stuff that I just don't see myself getting out of really anytime soon. I like to buy those sort of stocks. Yes, they go up and sometimes they go down. I mean, all stocks do. But generally speaking, the investment thesis is sound and there's a good reason why I bought them. It's also why I stay away from cyclicals because it's just, for me, it's just a bit too hard. You've got to get the timing right. Otherwise, you can literally get murdered. So you've got to be super, super careful with those. Uh, they're not a big favorite of mine. And so, yeah, I like to have a nicely diversified portfolio of things I want to own for a long time. And occasionally, I'll do something that's a bit more of a swing trade here and there. I must be honest, if I spend more time watching the markets start, like every single day rather than writing about them and sharing news and insights around them and everything else, I'd probably do more active trading. But that requires, you know, that's a full-time job in and of itself, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've discussed the need to just focus at a very micro level. Day trading is hard. I've done it. You know, I've done very high frequency trading stuff where you're literally in and out of several positions within a matter of minutes. And it's exhilarating. It's fun. And you can make a lot of money. You can really make a lot of money if you're disciplined. But if you're not focused, if you're not laser focused, I must add that if you're not laser focused on that, I would sound some caution there. I've done it, I've tried it, I've been successful. When I lost that laser focus, it cost me a lot of money. In aggregate, I was I was up, but that's the reason why in the earlier question I said, this year, I wasn't able to give that laser focus to trading my portfolio, and so my trading portfolio, I parked. I actually said, that's not risk I'm willing to introduce into the portfolio. The most important thing, Ghost, is know yourself, know your limitations, your limitations on your time, your attention span, and then utilize that where you get your best bang for buck, right? Yep, exactly. And for me right now, personally, my best investment is the finance coast. That's the truth of it. You know, that's where I'm spending as much of my time as I can and adding stuff in the portfolio that makes sense to add and, and hold for a long time. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, Ghost, one of the other questions that, that we receive, you know, is that it's kind of tied to what we do. It's tied to what we do here in Magic Markets is we've had a subscriber come through and say, you know, what do you guys do or what's your thinking? How do you pick stocks that you cover in Magic Markets Premium? I mean, that's an interesting one. It's one that we've kind of touched on. I'll jump straight in here in that sometimes it's stuff that we have in our portfolio that we're interested in just sharing our thinking around. Sometimes it's stuff that we are thinking of having in our portfolio. And sometimes it's just stuff that's topical that we're picking up in the news flow that we haven't looked at. And we find it's very interesting to go and have a look at that to figure out, hey, is this a great business? And then more importantly, is this actually a great investment? Now, superimposed on top of that is a, a selection criteria that it's got to be a global stock. We, that's our brand promise to our subscribers. It's got to be a global stock. We have experimented a little bit and we've gone with slightly less liquid stocks, for example. But generally, we're looking at stocks that are definitely investable, that have some liquidity, that give you good global exposures. And I, I mean, Ghost, I don't know if I've missed anything out there, but that's kind of how I look at it when I look at Magic Markets Premium, right? Yeah, I'm not going to spend too much time adding to that. I mean, Magic Markets Premium is a learning and insights platform rather than a hot tips platform. And for those who are already subscribed, they know that and enjoy it already. And those who are on the fence should check it out. It is only 99 bucks a month. So next time you want to buy yourself a, a steers meal, maybe just cut back a bit on that, give this a try. And, and long term, it might be better for you than the steers. Anyway, moving on, Mo, I'm just going to pose you the next question. So it comes down to things you've read and I guess things you would recommend. So 
The exact question was, hi guys, would love to know what your favorite investing books are. Thanks for all the amazing content. So thank you for the kind words to the person who posted that on Twitter. And Mo, what are your favorite investing books? I mean, there's there's a long list. And you know, at the end of the day, I, I almost want to reframe this question. Maybe I'm being unfair here, but I want to reframe this in terms of what's one of the more interesting books that I've read more recently. Uh, and in the context of the world that we've discussed this year, I mean, I, I've told you what I've done with my portfolio and the kind of global macro risks and what's been front of mind for me. So there's a book out there. It's written by a friend of mine. It's called Geopolitical Alpha. Now, this is someone, he, he's literally a geopolitical strategist. He services big institutional clients. His name is Marco Papik, right? And Marco wrote this book, Geopolitical Alpha. You can find it on Amazon. You can probably find it in bookstores down in South Africa as well. But why do I flag this book specifically is that it's not just talking about current affairs. It's actually talking about building a tool set and how you utilize that tool set to contextualize geopolitical risks in a portfolio management, in an investment framework perspective. So that's valuable to me given the types of risks that I find I'm facing globally on a macro level and how can I actually execute tradable, investable ideas knowing what I know about geopolitics. And that's the reason why I want to put that book on the agenda right now is it's front of mind. It's a tool set I never had or was probably nascent. I had it in the back of my mind. This book is quite nice in terms of just solidifying that and giving readers some tools that they can then actively use in terms of how they execute on some of their views. What about you, Ghost? So in case anyone doesn't know how different Mo and I actually are, I could probably not think of anything worse than reading a book that has geopolitical in name. Sorry, Mo. Just kidding. Um, but the stuff that I love reading, unsurprisingly, is more bottoms-up company stuff. So look, from an investment perspective, I mean, Peter Lynch's stuff is very good, etc. Like the, the big names are the big names for a reason. But I love reading a lot of the sort of stories of how great businesses were built. Because at the end of the day, when you're an investor, what are you investing in? You're investing in a business. And if you don't understand how businesses grow and how strategies play out and how they work, and how they are funded and all of the above, then what are you actually investing in at single stock level? So for me, for example, stuff like Shoe Dog, which is the story of Nike, is just a brilliant, brilliant read. You know, check it out. There are some great examples of these sort of books that help you understand how businesses actually grow. And that would be my, my recommendation personally. Mo, shall we move on to the next one? Uh, this, look, this is a long time ago for you, 20-year-old Mo. That's a hell of a long time ago. So what would you go back and tell 20-year-old Mo? Uh, you know, what, did you, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? It's the classic question. <laughs> yeah, 20-year-old tw Mo knew very little compared to, to, to now slightly older Mo. Ghost, it's, I'm actually going to take a different angle on this one. I'm, I'm going to steer away from markets. And I, I would tell 20-year-old Mo to pay... Can I actually ask you a question? Was 20-year-old Mo, would he receive this by carrier pigeon? Did he have a Blackberry? <laughs> give, us, give us a sense there, Mo. How was 20-year-old Mo speaking smoke, to his mates? Smoke signals, you know, smoke signals yeah. with, a, with a blanket no, But genuinely, how, how was 20-year-old Mo speaking to his mates? What were you, was it? 20-year-old Mo still, was it? still remembers uh, a service called Mixit, which is pre-BBM oh, yes. and pre-WhatsApp. So Mixit, I think, was, was actually South African originated, if, if memory serves, mm -hmm. but it was Mixit. And you may be texted your friends, uh, something that actually happens a lot in Canada is they don't use WhatsApp. They use a lot of text and iMessage. But back to 20-year-old Mo, you either texted your friends or, wait for this, there was a thing called a one-second calling. I remember this when I was at Varsity, right? Is that you could literally phone and speak for one second and hang up and the mobile companies wouldn't charge you because it was in the days before per second billing, right? And so you literally your conversations were something like, hey, ghost, 
what stock we covering? You know, so that's 20-year-old Mo. Uh, Those were the early days of Twitter. You had to be quick. Mo, I, I, I remember Mixit because Teenage Ghost was trying to meet, uh, you know, shall we say Teenage Ghosts of the opposite sex over the same platform at much the same time. So, you know, that, that was an interesting interesting time in the world. I don't remember one second calling. I do remember please call me and being able to then sneak your own message at the end of one. And then you could send a message for free provided it started with the please call me. So, you know, these were the, those were the days. For yeah. our younger listeners, this is how we used to live. I know yeah, we, it's foreign we, to you. We, we had to hassle, right? So, mix it or <laughs> WhatsApp. But. It, it shows you how the hustle is very real for 20-year-old Mo and 20-year-old Ghost. Um, going back to it, what would I tell my 20-year-old self is that pay a lot more attention to the people around you. You know, I said I'm going to go with something that's not markets related here. Is 20-year-old me was so focused on getting ahead, on studying, on my career and getting ahead and... Older, wiser Mo now uh, realizes that markets will be there. Certain investments will be there. Your career will be there. Sometimes the people around you will not be there. So don't take that for granted. Pay attention specifically. Be present in the moments you have with the people around you. And if you do that, I think that's solid advice that I would give my 20-year-old self. I must be honest. I don't know if my 20-year-old self would be that receptive to that. But maybe I should actually just give him a smack on the head and be like, pay attention. It's important. What about you? Uh, geez, I don't know. I can't imagine going back to 20-year-old ghost and being like, one day your business is going to be this purple cartoon. I mean, it's just completely absurd. But what I would say is my advice also wouldn't necessarily be markets related. I know that's probably why it was asked. But I think mine would be just carry on playing sport. So don't allow yourself to stop doing that at the end of varsity because I used to play a whole lot of tennis. I recently tried to get back in so that my ankles are finished. I actually can't play. I've been told not to. So... Um, you know, it's, it's, it really sucks when you, when you leave a sport behind for a decade and you thought to yourself, Hey, this is a sport for life and you try to get back into it and you actually can't play it. So that's not great. To be honest, there's nothing I would change about the path I took. So I would go back and do the same thing I did, you know, which is read lots of books, choose interesting alternatives wherever they become available. Nothing about the path I took was sort of standard. Um, yes, I went the CA route, but in terms of where I did articles, where I worked after articles, it was all very left field. Maybe that's the advice is the left field opportunities are often the best ones. Don't be shy to walk down them, walk down that path. You never know where it goes. Yeah, I think that that's so spot on. And again, maybe maybe to the to the listener, to the subscriber who sent that question in, you know, if, if you're disappointed and you're expecting something like telling 20-year-old more buy Google, you know, yes, absolutely. I love that with like a, a magical almanac, you know, in the style of Back to the Future. But let's maybe wrap this up, Ghost, with, with the last kind of investment-oriented question we received. And, and this is one I'm going to skip over. I'm going to actually pose this one to you. Uh, someone came through and said, if we're looking at small and mid-cap stocks on the JSE, and this is the reason why, why I'm actually, you know, sitting this one out is I haven't looked in detail at the JSE for some time. I'm more globally focused. But on the JSE, is there anything worth investing in with an investment horizon of 20 years? I think it's a great question, and I think there's a lot to unpack there. So, Ghost, why don't you wrap up the show with an answer to that question for us? Yeah, so I, I laughed when I saw that question because 20 years is a very, very, very Long time ago, 20 years ago, I was in grade eight. I distinctly recall this. I went to CARES for high school. I'll give a bit away here. And uh, that that was a long time ago. That was a different time in the world. No one even had a color screen cell phone. The first color screen cell phone was a 3510i. And I distinctly recall someone getting the first one in grade nine. And that was like a big deal because heck, you could play snake in color. I mean, 20 years is a very long time. So if the metaverse turns out to be anything like what Zuck would have us believe, then 
we don't even know if Apple will be around in 20 years because the metaverse could replace the entire Apple ecosystem. We just don't know. So it's a super hard question. I would be nervous of any investment horizon that line. I think buy and forget is tough and it's sometimes bad advice. It's good advice when you're buying at index level. By all means, buy the S&P 500 for the next 20 years and leave it alone. But at individual stock level, you've got to be super, super careful. But anyway, to answer the question, in terms of small and mid-cap stocks on the JSC, so with that kind of investment time horizon, I think you have to pick something that can grow overseas. It would be foolish to pick something that can only grow in South Africa for the next 20 years. I mean, South Africa, we sometimes don't know what it's going to look like 20 days from now, let alone 20 years. So the one stock I would give a little shout out to would be PBT Group, which is a stock that I irritatingly continue to always wait for the right entry price and then I never seem to get it. But um, PBT Group is a sort of, I mean, it's like a baby Accenture in some respects. They do a lot of sort of big data analysis and helping companies understand that kind of stuff. It's like the smart IT world, if that makes any sense. It's a consulting business mainly. They sell time, but as we covered recently on Magic Markets Premium, selling time ain't so bad. Just go look at Accenture's business. And they are expanding overseas, and they've done a really good job of getting a lot of blue chip clients into the business and growing with them. And it is still a small business in a massive growth industry, and there's nothing else like it on the JSE. So I think that's something that's well worth a look at if you really want to invest thematically with a long time horizon you've probably got to look at tech stuff that can grow anywhere in the world you know something like capital appreciation group is perhaps another one otherwise it's going to be stuff that's industrial or cyclical or whatever the case may be and 20 years from now where will south africa be sure i don't know guys we can only hope but who knows yeah ghost i think that's super interesting and unfortunately it's all we have time for this week but i think that context is so important right 20 years ago there was no facebook uh, Facebook, not only was Facebook created, but Facebook morphed into Meta and is a mega cap and now slightly less mega cap company as, as we speak today. Companies like Tesla really only came about in 2008, you know, so also within a 20 year time horizon. So I, I like the fact that someone's asking the question around investing with a 20 year time horizon, uh, but maybe not in an individual security. I, I've, I've been quite vocal saying when you invest, think about your kids think about your grandkids, invest with that time horizon in, in place. Yes, absolutely. And so to your point, yes, maybe you can invest in an index uh, over that time horizon. Maybe you can contextualize an asset allocation over that time horizon. But I think individual securities, you know, spot on. I'd certainly be quite cautious on that. Uh, I'm going to go check out PBT Group because now it's piqued my interest. I'm going to go and have a look. Well, I wanted to add one more thing before we close off. So with an investment horizon of 20 years, and maybe this is a very personal thing, but if that's the kind of horizon over which you want to create wealth, and it is for most of us, then think about starting your own business because actually that's the thing you can control for the next 20 years. You're probably not going to find something on the market that is going to do exactly what you want it to for the next 20 years. So it's actually a great thing to just start your own business as we've done individually and together, you know, and, and grow that for the next 20 years. You've got the time horizon to do it. And maybe that's what I would tell my 20-year-old self is don't be scared I wasn't. I mean, I lost some money along the way and I've you know, picked up on something that's doing really well. But don't be scared to row your own boat in that regard and build your own business. That's sometimes, the, or often it's the best investment you can make. If it works out, that is the best investment you'll ever make in your life. It's building your own building business. Building your own business, investing in yourself. And, and we'd like to think you listening to the show, uh, joining us on this magic markets journey is part of that investing in yourself. So 
Ghost, I think that's unfortunately all we have time for to our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We hope this has shone a little bit of a light in terms of perspectives, not just on markets, but on who we are as people. Let us know what you think on social media. It's at Finance Ghost and at Muhammad Nalla. Until next week, same time, same place. Thanks. Cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.